0: Well, good morning again. I don't know if it's been five minutes or not. I didn't time it. Kyle's been five minutes. I didn't time it. Do, do you use a stopwatch to do that? How do you How do you track us? You just do it. <laughs> oh, so we're going to be in Ephesians six this morning. There's really no. Uh, big significance to being in Ephesians 6 as far as it relates to December 31st, the end of the year, and uh, the upcoming new year, and we're talking about the armor of God this morning. I don't have any spiritual insights into any big battles that we're going to be facing in our lives. I'm sure we will, but I had a real simple reason for why I chose to go here, and that is because when I was teaching through the book of Ephesians when I was still teaching every Sunday before uh, Kyle took the reins, I did not finish this section. So I would just like to finish it. So that's the simple reason why, but I'm sure that we're going to be encouraged as we're pointed to the Lord this morning. So with that, let's direct ourselves to the Lord in prayer right now and ask for his help. Lord, we are grateful that we can come together as your people, Lord, our weekly rhythm of gathering together with your people to sing songs that encourage us and point us to you. Lord, to hear your word taught that reminds us, Lord, week in and week out of all that you have done for us and that our hope is in you, our confidence is in you. Lord, we ask this morning that you, by your spirit, would minister to us, that you would teach us you would instruct us and you would encourage us, and that, Lord, that we would find rest for our souls in Christ. Lord, bless your precious people this morning. We ask in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. So we, we live in between Christ's first coming and his second coming. We live in an era after Jesus came to the earth to accomplish salvation. But we're waiting. We're in this in-between phase. We're waiting for him to return to consummate or to complete our redemption so that we will be resurrected to eternal life, where we will see him face to face. So we live in that in-between, waiting for the consummation, where we will finally be delivered from all the difficulties of this world, from pain, from suffering, from sin, from death, from hardships, and all other kinds of horrors that we see and experience in this world. Yet, at the same time, I want us to understand that even though we we live in this in-between period and we long for the day when Christ consummates our redemption he completes it In this life this era that we live in there are still some good things When when God made the world he said it was what it was good It was good now, certainly the, the fall has marred that, the fall of man, Adam and Eve in the garden when they sinned against God, and and the curse resulted from their disobedience to him, and it affected everything. It affected them, it affected creation, it affected everything, but but there's still good in the world. In other words, there's still blessings in this life, and I'm sure you can think of many blessings that... You experience in this life. We have the blessing of family. We have the blessing of friends. We have the beauty of creation. That we have the sunrise, the sunsets. We had the rain this week. We've got the snow on the mountains. There, there are blessings in this life. But at the same time, because of the fall, because of the curse, let's just be honest. Life is hard. And sometimes it's harder than at other times. The fall has affected us, each one of us, individually, personally, it has affected us. We are fallen people. We are born fallen people. We have inherited Adam and Eve's sin nature. And that, that means that we don't think the things that we should, we don't act the way that we should. We struggle to do what's right. And so the fall has affected us. And the fall has also affected not just us, but it's affected the world around us. The world around us is broken. It only takes just a few minutes on the news or to drive down the street to know that we live in a broken world. Bad things happen to us that we have no control over. There's a reason why depression, anxiety exist. There's, there's a reason why people are racked with pain and with trials in their lives. Because not only has the curse affected us, it's affected the world around us. And if that's not enough, if I haven't discouraged you enough, let me just discourage you a little bit more. The Bible tells us, Paul tells us here in Ephesians, that Satan and the forces of darkness, they wage war against us. So we've got all these things. We've got the flesh, the world, and we've got the devil and his minions that wage war against us. They're opposed to us. So so the question is this as we come to our text this morning in Ephesians chapter 6 is what do we do? What hope do we have in the midst of all these forces opposed against us? Well, at the heart of Paul's message to the church there in Ephesus is this. Remember who you are in Christ. You've been united to him. You are in union with him. You once were separated, we were alienated from him because of our sin, but now because of the gospel, because of the good news, because he went to the cross and he died for us and his blood was shed for us, we have been united to him by faith in Jesus Christ. So he says, remember who you are in Christ. He says, remember what God has done for you in Christ, that that in Christ we have redemption. Redemption by his blood. In him, we have an inheritance that is incorruptible, undefiled, reserved for us in heaven. We have hope. Remember what God has given you in Christ, Paul says, and put it on. So as we talk about putting on, that brings us to the first section here, Verses ten through thirteen. Most of most of you, if you've been Christian for any length of time, you are probably acquainted with the armor of God. You've you've heard sermons on the armor of God. I don't know that I've ever personally taught a sermon on the armor of God. I've heard many. I've read commentaries on it. Maybe you were exposed to the armor of God in some vacation Bible school, right? And they. Put up the image of a Roman soldier with all their armor on, right? Or, or maybe you grew up in the era where uh, Christian producers created a film series called Bible Man, right? And he was outfitted. I mean, he was. I mean, he had the six pack. He had the suit on. He had the helmet. He had the sword. He had a cape. He had it all. Or, or maybe like my kids, you grew up in the era where you were introduced to the armor of God through some talking vegetables, veggie tales, right? And Larry Boy comes out in his suit of armor, right? He he doesn't fare too well, by the way. But however you might have heard about the armor of God, I would just about guarantee that most of us, if not all of us, have typically heard it taught in a way where the emphasis is on us. What we have to do. It's our battle with the enemy. And frankly, as I think back on my early exposures to teachings on the sermon of God or on the the armor of God, it's exhausting. It's discouraging and it's overwhelming with the emphasis that is put on what I have to do, what we have to do to battle against the enemy. I don't even know where he's at. I don't know about you, but I don't have, I, I, I've known people that have spent hours, you know, trying to learn demonology and all that so they could call out different demons by names and, and they could battle against him. And uh, that just wears me out. Not only is it unbiblical, but it's unhelpful. But I want us to take a look here at verse 10, first thing, and notice what Paul says. He says, finally, in other words, I'm wrapping up my letter to you, Ephesians. He says, finally, be strong. Be strong in who? The Lord. And in the strength of what? His might. Notice the emphasis be strong in the Lord, not in ourselves. Be strong, not in our might, but in his might. And so right at the beginning of this section, this closing section of scripture, Paul points us to Christ, which he's been doing throughout the whole letter, so we shouldn't, this shouldn't surprise any of us. So this isn't about our strength. It's about God's strength on our behalf. And Christians, we, we understand that any strength we have is completely of God, Right? We we learned that as children in the popular hymn that was written back in eight in the 1860s. You remember it? Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to Him belong. They are weak, but what? He is strong. We learned that, but then we come to this teaching and it gets all turned around. We are strong. No, he is strong. We are weak, but he is strong. So, so none of this armor of God that we're going to get into in just a minute here, none of, none of what, what's about to come here in this section on the armor of God is promoting a Navy SEAL Team 6 type of Christianity. Hoorah, right? This isn't isn't a, a Rambo Christianity where only the strong survive, right? That's not what it's about. The entire section is a call to look at the one who said, my power is made perfect in weakness. It's in abandoning our own efforts and looking to Jesus. And only by looking to Jesus as we abandon our own efforts are we able to do what Paul says, which is stand. We don't stand in our own might, our own strength. We stand in the Lord's. We trust him. Our faith is in him. As we look at verses 11 and 12, we see why we need to look to Christ. Paul says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able, to be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. He says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Now, you might think that we do, and there is a truth here. We do have friction with, with, with people. There are challenges and struggles with flesh and blood, right, with others, It makes us thankful for those who God has given us in his common grace who can intercede and help and, and, and give counsel and, and direction and to deal with those problems. We do deal with, wrestle with flesh and blood and, in that sense, but that's not what Paul's talking about. We, we see flesh and blood battles all the time, right? We've got the whole thing going on with Hamas and Israel right now. We've got the thing going on with Russia and, and, and uh, Ukraine. many of us in this room work for the Department of Defense or defense contractors. We're we're well acquainted with flesh and blood wars, and we're thankful that God has given nations rulers who do not bear the sword in vain so they can protect its people from enemies within and without, right? Right? So he's not saying that those aren't real things. He says, that's not my my focus. And he's he's talking to us as Christians. He's talking about the fact that God's kingdom is a spiritual kingdom, first and foremost. If it were a physical kingdom, Jesus said, my disciples would fight. He's not saying that war is wrong. He's saying, that's not what my people are going to be doing. This is a spiritual battle over the kingdom of God. And the sports the forces of darkness are waging war against it. They hate Satan and his hordes hate Christ. They hate the gospel. They hate the church. They hate believers. And so Paul says, we battle with spiritual forces, against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness. And against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. I mean, he's building it up here. He says, This is real. It's dangerous. It's evil. And Paul is telling us that we we are engaged in a battle with Satan and his demonic forces. Think about the book of Job. Think about Job. Do you remember that there Job was? He was a blameless man, loved the Lord. He had children, he had wealth, he had servants. Then all of a sudden, it seems like within a span of just a little bit of time, one servant after another comes to Job and says, hey, I need to tell you that these, these band of marauding thieves have come in and they have wiped out your livestock and they have killed your servants. And then fire came down from heaven and destroyed more of it. And then, while your children were sitting in the house, the storm came through and the walls fell down upon them and all of your children died. He got one thing, bad news, one after another. And then, to make matters worse, he was stricken from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet with boils. His his body was racked with pain. And then... His friends come, and they really don't know how to help him. These different friends of his, they're miserable counselors, they were called. And they give him bad theology, bad information about God. I mean, one thing after another. Job doesn't have a clue what's going on. He knows what's going on in the physical world in the tangible world. But he doesn't know that Satan's been up there talking to God in heaven about this. Just like you and I, I don't know when the enemy's attacking, when he's not attacking. I don't know what he's doing. Job didn't know. We most likely don't know nine times out of of 10. But God knew. But there's these demonic forces and they're waging battle against us, just like they did with Job, in real life, in real time, in our lives. I'm not saying that, so we can contemplate that and try to figure out: is every little thing going on in my life is that the enemy? Because I don't think it is. You remember that uh, Flip Wilson show years and years ago, and had that character on there. You know, it was a Geraldine. You know, the devil made me do it. The devil was responsible for everything. I don't think that's true, but certainly he is behind a lot. Him and his forces, and they are certainly opposed to the church so Paul says, therefore, because of these forces that are opposed against God's people, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. And so the question is this, what is this armor of God and what are we supposed to take up and put on? Well that leads us to the next section in verses 14 through 17. But before we look at the specific pieces of armor, I want to make a few helpful points that that we should take note of as we look at the armor. First, and most of these things should be in your notes these four points I'm going to give you. First is we shouldn't get mired in the weeds of each individual piece of armor. In other words, we shouldn't sit there and say, well, okay, now which pieces are, are offensive uh, armor? Uh, you know, which ones am I supposed to use? Which one am I, are defensive pieces of armor? It's just unhelpful. And that's not Paul's point so that we can figure out what's, you know, how we're supposed to use these things. Nor do I think it's helpful to try to visualize. Early on, and Shannon and I were talking about this last night in our, in our Christian walk, you know, we heard sermons on the armor of God and we were taught that every morning you're supposed to visualize yourself putting on each piece of armor. You know, helmet of salvation, the belt of truth, right? The breastplate of righteousness. You shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And so you would go through this ritual, if you will, of visualizing all these pieces of armor that you were putting on. And so that was before you started your day because you couldn't start your day unless you had the armor of God on because you weren't ready for the battle. But let me tell you what, that lasted about 30 seconds. Then you walk out of your bedroom or wherever you had your private devotional time and you go into the real world of family life. A kid crying. Another one throwing something at the wall or throwing something at you. And then some unhelpful, foolish thing comes out of your mouth. And before you know it, you're sitting over here in the corner in a heap, and your armor is just all laying out there, right? So it's unhelpful to get mired in the weeds of which piece is what, what it does. Just not helpful, and it confuses the point. Secondly, none of the armor of God is about us. Whose armor is it? The armor of who? God. The armor of God. It's about Christ. Why would Paul all of a sudden switch modes in the book of Ephesians or any book that he writes in and start talking about us? That's not to say that he doesn't give us instruction and things like that. He does. It's about what God has done for us in and through Christ Jesus. Thirdly, Paul is telling us that we don't battle against flesh and blood. We battle against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, meaning what? That we're in way over our heads. The moment that you think that you can go toe-to-toe with the enemy, you're in trouble because you can't. We can't. So we had better put on Christ. He is the armor of God. Paul tells us in other places. He says in Romans thirteen twelve, he says the night is far gone, the day is at hand. He says so. Let us cast off the work of works of darkness and put on the armor of light. And then he explains in verse fourteen of that chapter what that armor of God is. He says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. So when Paul tells us to put on the armor of God or the armor of light, it's another way of telling us to put on Christ. And we'll talk about what put on means as we get toward the end of the armor. Fourthly, it's doubtful that Paul, when he is talking about the armor of God, as he's in chains in a Roman you know, house, prison, or wherever he's at, we know he's in Rome, it's doubtful that Paul is envisioning a Roman soldier suiting up for battle. That's just not Paul. Paul always reaches back to the Old Testament, just like Kyle is doing in our Hebrews. Hebrews is always reaching back to the Old Testament. There are echoes in the Old Testament that point us to Christ. That's what Paul's doing here. It's no different. Because this whole thing is about redemption in Christ. So when we make the assumption that Paul is envisioning a Roman soldier suiting up for battle, we miss the fact that this armor has a rich background in the Old Testament. It's the armor that God himself dons on behalf of his people to rescue us from sin and slavery to the enemy. So, if we miss that point, we will likely misinterpret and misapply the armor of God and make it all about us. So, let's take a look now at how the armor of God is about Christ. The first thing that, first piece of armor that Paul mentions is the belt of truth. He says in verse 14, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. In Isaiah chapter 11, we're going to see Isaiah mention the belt of truth. But the context of Isaiah 11 is that God's people had turned their back on him. Specifically, Isaiah prophesies to the southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom, remember at this point, the kingdom is divided. You have the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah and the northern kingdom is already being taken captive by the Assyrians. And they're being carted off as captives. And they're being assimilated amongst the Assyrian people because of their rebellion against God. And Judah is not far, far, far from behind them. And so God sends Isaiah to prophesy to the southern kingdom and calling them to repentance to remember what he's done for them and to return to him. And he tells them, if they don't, there's going to be devastation that's going to come upon your land. And you're going to be deported, specifically by the Babylonians. So he prophesies over 100 years in advance of a foreboding future for the southern kingdom. But in the midst of that foreboding future, he doesn't leave them hopeless. He also prophesies and promises to them that he is going to send a Savior. And this is what he says in Isaiah 11.5. He says, righteousness shall be the belt of his waist. Faithfulness, or truth, is another good translation. Truth, the belt that's on his loins. And so he says, you're headed for disaster. You're about ready to be taken over by a physical enemy. But I'm going to send a savior. I'm going to send a deliverer. I'm going to send you a king who will be faithful to me. And he has a better, he's a better deliverer than Gideon ever was. He's a better deliverer than Samson ever was. He's a better king than David. He's better than a Joshua who gave all the land of Israel and conquered. Righteousness shall be on the belt of his waist, and faithfulness, truth, on the belt of his loins. And so Paul points us back to the Old Testament to tell us that the belt of truth is about Christ then he says, the breastplate of righteousness. And I'm going to combine this one with the helmet of truth because they're both talked about in the very same passage in Isaiah chapter 59. He says, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and then in verse 17, take up the helmet of salvation. Again, Paul reaches back to the Old Testament to tell us about Christ in Isaiah 59. He says this, Isaiah 59, 17, that he, that is Christ, put on righteousness as a breastplate, and a helmet of salvation on his head, he put on garments of vengeance for clothing, and he wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. He's talking about Christ, not talking about us. He's talking about Jesus. In the the preceding chapters in Isaiah, Isaiah describes God's promise to deal with the physical enemies of his people, specifically Babylon. He said, I'm going to deal with them. Oh, they're going to come in. They're going to cart you off. They're going to conquer you because you did not remember what I've done for you. You didn't return to me. And so I'm going to discipline you. You're going to get 70 years in exile. But I'm going to deal with Babylon. And I'm going to set you free. And I'm going to return you to your land. I'm going to do that for you. So he's talking about, Isaiah's talking about these physical enemies that God's going to deal with, but here Isaiah describes this divine warrior coming to deal with a far greater enemy and a more dangerous enemy of our souls. And that greater enemy is our bondage to sin and our captivity to Satan before you and I were saved. Then he's going to come with a breastplate of righteousness and a helmet of salvation, and he is going to deliver his people. And he is righteous. You and I are not righteous in and of ourselves. We, we have no righteousness of our own. If the Lord were to deal with us according to our righteousness, according to our deeds, we, we could only anticipate a fearful judgment. But Isaiah declares that this divine warrior, that is Jesus Christ, he wouldn't come as a wrathful judge but as a redeemer to bring his people salvation. To deliver us from sin power and Satan's grip. He is a righteous God. He is a good God. And he brings salvation. Notice next that we have the shoes for your feet in verse 15. Now, now. Paul's not talking about a Roman soldier's sandals that he would be lacing up for battle. It's about Jesus. Again, this is an image from the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7, where Isaiah says, how beautiful upon the mountains, you all know this one, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who proclaims peace, who brings good news of happiness who proclaims salvation, and he says to Zion, your Lord reigns. That's good news. Babylon doesn't reign over you. The Assyrians don't reign over you. Your Lord reigns. It's good news. You've been delivered. You've been rescued. You've been redeemed. Well, who brought this good news? Jesus did. Jesus brought the good news. It's the good news of what he did and not what we have to do. If there's anything in the gospel about what you and I have to do, it is not the gospel. It is not good news. The gospel is all about what he did for you and I. Because we were unable to do anything. We were blinded in our sin. We were powerless. We were helpless. We, we were captives. We, we couldn't set ourselves free. He came and did that for us. Jesus said that himself in Luke chapter 4, verse 18. You remember he went into the synagogue one day, and in the midst of the teaching, he, he, he took out the, the, the scroll of Isaiah, and he unrolled it. And he began to read from it. He said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And this was at the beginning of his ministry. He said, the Lord has called me to deliver good news to the poor. He has sent me, he said, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. In other words, Jesus said, I am the good news. Without me, there is no good news. He is the shoes of the gospel of peace. He's the one who delivered it to us and proclaimed it. He said, in me there is life. Next, we come to the shield of faith. He says in verse 16, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. The shield of faith. He doesn't say the shield of our faithfulness. Our faithfulness, it ebbs and it flows. It doesn't take a lot to derail our faithfulness. Again, Paul is not pointing to us, but to Christ Christ. And he reaches back again to the Old Testament. And there are several allusions to this in the Old Testament. One that you probably remember is in Genesis chapter 15, 1 with Abraham. Abraham is fresh off of a battle with five, against five kings. Him and I think it was 300 and some odd people of his allies. And they took on five kings because they had taken Sodom and Gomorrah and they had captured Lot and his family and they had taken, and they had looted the towns, and they had killed people. So Abraham is fast on the hunt to track them down. He tracks them down. He battles against them. He wins the battle. He takes back the spoils. He takes back and frees Lot and his family. And at the end of that, in chapter 15, verse 1, He says, after these things that we just talked about, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. He says, fear not, Abraham. Why would he be fearful after he just defeated five kings? Because he's fearful. They're going to come back and get him. He says, fear not, Abraham. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Proverbs 30 Verse five says, "God is a shield to those who take refuge in him." And so Paul is pointing back to the shield of faith that Christ is our shield. God is our shield. He's not telling us to figure out where our shield is and take it up, envision it, put it on, put it out there against those flaming darts. I don't even know where the flaming darts are firing from. I don't have a clue. God is our shield and our refuge. He is our hiding place, the Psalms tell us, in the day of difficulty. His faithfulness will keep us safe when flaming darts come raining down upon us. You say, what are the flaming darts? I'm not confident in this, but I would say that the flaming darts that you and I are familiar with on a day-to-day basis are uh, when we're thinking about these spiritual forces that are attacking God's people, those attacks typically come in, in, in accusations from the evil one. He is the accuser of the brethren, Scripture tells us. He is always condemning us. You're not good enough to merit salvation. You got to be better. Look what you did, how you failed, how you messed up, how you talked to this person how you looked at this, how you did that, you are not worthy. And your answer is, you are right, I am not. He's always condemned us. I think here's the big thing that he tries to do. It's the same tactic he used in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. You know, if you eat this fruit, you won't die. And the point he was trying to make is that God is withholding stuff from you good stuff. If he were really a good God, he would let you have this fruit too. And he deceives them, and he tempts them, and they take of the fruit. And they find out God really was good in withholding this from me because he was right. In the day that I eat of it, I will die. The curse, the fall happens. And so the the enemy is always telling you and I by the circumstances going on in our lives, struggles we have with friends, with family, relationships, hardships, with work, with finances, whatever it is, God is not good. If he was good, he wouldn't let you go. And I get that. I get that struggle. It's a real struggle. It happens to you, it happens to me. We, we are tempted to believe that God is not good, that God doesn't care about us. If God cared about us, why would he let you go through this? God cared about Job, and he still experienced suffering. And the outcome of that suffering, I don't think God gets a jolly out of seeing us suffer, because one day the suffering's going to end. But the end result of that suffering in Job's life was Job said, at the end of it all, he said, man, I had heard about you. He was face-to-face. Face. I had heard about you with the, I had this, you know, this theoretical knowledge of you, God. Oh, but now, now, now I see your face. I know things about you now through my suffering that I didn't know about you before. I have a much more intimate knowledge. And I think every one of us can say that as we've gone through suffering. We have learned deep, wonderful, intimate truths about God and our relationship with Him that we would have never had if life had always been on the mountaintop. Those fiery arrows that Paul talks about, they're extinguished. Not by you and I mustering up sufficient faith by man, but rather by us fleeing to God for refuge. As the psalmist says, that He is an ever-present help in times of trouble. The God of Jacob, He's our refuge. And even when we've been attacked on all fronts, we've been beaten down. And and you and I don't even know how to even look to the Lord because we're just crumpled in a heap of mess, beaten up by the enemy. Jesus is for us. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, he says in verse 34, he says, Christ Jesus is the one who died More than that, he was raised from the dead. And more than that, he is at the right hand of God. And he does what? He intercedes for you and I. In other words, when you and I don't have the strength to pray, to run to God, Jesus is there praying for us, interceding for us. Well, and the last piece of armor is the sword of the Spirit which is the word of God. And this is another image drawn from the Old Testament, Isaiah 49.2, where Isaiah promised a servant who says, the Lord made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow, and in his quiver, he hid me away. That's why, It was so hard for the people to realize when Jesus came on the scene that he was the one because he was hidden away like an arrow in a quiver waiting to be revealed by God. And in the New Testament, he is revealed. Jesus is that servant that Isaiah prophesied about who wielded the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, the promised servant, Jesus, he could have entered this world with a sharp sword of judgment, couldn't he? Taking that sword of judgment and just condemning all who fall short of his perfect righteousness. And who all would have been condemned? Everyone. Because we all fall short of his perfect righteousness. Yet in his first coming, Jesus came with words of good news the good news that he said, I have come to seek and to save that which is lost. But make no mistake about it, in his second coming, Jesus will return as a warrior, riding out, Revelation chapter 19 tells us, he returns as a warrior riding out on a white horse with a sharp sword coming from his mouth where he will judge all nations and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord and that's why it's important that in this life that you believe in Christ as your savior you believe the good news the sword which is the word of god the good news that he has brought good news of peace to sinners now let's look at the last section as we wrap up where paul says basically this is a summation of his last few verses Pray for, each, pray for one another and pray for me. He says in verse 18, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end, that, praying with all supplication, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance making supplication for all the saints. And so Paul says that we're to take our pleas to God. Asking God to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. And that's really we we make we make prayer so mystical, so complicated. Prayer is simply this: it's an acknowledgement of our dependence upon God, our need for God. That's what prayer is. And then the last two verses, Paul reminds us that he's no different than you and I. I think we have this tendency to kind of. Uh, put the apostles on a pedestal to make them like the A team and we're the B team or more likely the D or E, C, D or somewhere down the road there. We're way down there. But Paul reminds us that they're human just like us. He says, make supplication for all the saints in verse 19 and also for me, pray for me, pray for each other, pray for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly, proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am ambassador in chains, and I may declare, boldly, may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Now, now we, we might think of Paul as this apostle who walked from city to city with this inexhaustible well of, of bravery and courage. But here Paul reminds us that he is a weak and fallen man just like you and I are who understands his need for courage and for boldness. He says, he says, listen, church. He says, I'm no different than you. I've been beaten. I've been battered. I've been opposed. I'm in chains now. I'm weary and I'm worn down. As you pray for one another, would you, would you Pray for me too, he says, because I'm just like you. I've got the same struggles, the same battles as you do. And so Paul in verses 10 through 20, in this whole section on the armor of God, just like everything else that he's written to the Ephesians, he points us outside of ourselves and to Christ. He doesn't have this inward focus on what we have to do about us pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. He continually points us to Christ. The letter to the Ephesians is a call to remember. Remember who you are in Christ. That we are united to Christ. We are united to God's people. The middle wall of separation has been torn down. There's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, but we are one in Christ. We are one body, one people. The rhythm of our lives is coming together week after week to be reminded of Christ. We sit under the teaching of the word of God to be reminded week in and week out what Christ has done for us. Reminded of the hope that we have in Christ. We come together to sing songs and hymns and spiritual songs that encourage us in Christ to be pointed to him. We come together to be reminded to pray for one another, to build one another up, to speak truth and love, to mutually submit one to another, and to be reminded to rest in Christ, not in our abilities, not in our faithfulness, not in our helmet but in Christ. So being that the armor of God is all about Christ, how do we go about putting it on? This is my last little point. Again, I don't think it's helpful to visualize trying to put on each piece in the morning before you start your day, only to have it all knocked off before you, before you leave the house. We go about putting on the armor of God by remembering by continually pointing one another to Jesus over and over and over again. That he is our righteousness. He is our peace. Because we forget, that's why we come every week, right? To be reminded of who he is and who we are in him. He's our righteousness. He's our peace. He is the good news. He is our shield and refuge and deliverer. He is the ground of our hope. As the psalm says, or as the hymn says, on Christ the solid rock we stand, all other ground is what? Sinking sand. So we remind one another that we would be ruined if it were not for Christ. We remind one another that Satan would destroy us if not for Christ. We remind one another that we would be ultimately lost if not for Christ. We remind one another that we would have every reason to live in fear if not for Christ. And so, but because of our standing, but because of Christ, our our standing before God is secure. So I'm not worried about these forces of darkness and these evil things. I can't I can't spend a lot of time thinking about that. I don't have the bandwidth for it. I don't I don't have the ability to do that. It's enough for me, week in and week out, the weekly rhythm, to become and to be reminded of Christ. I'm not concerned about the evil one. He's a defeated foe who will ultimately be destroyed at the second coming of Christ. The battle belongs to the Lord. And because of who Christ is, we have a secure standing church. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will ever snatch them from my hand. We have a secure standing in Christ because he is our armor. Amen? So I'm going to ask the worship team to come up and close this in the song. And as the elements are being passed out by the ushers, I would ask that you pay attention to the lyrics because I think it sums up well this whole section on the armor of God. So we invite you to take communion with it. If you're saved, the Lord has saved you, and you've trusted in Christ as your Savior, we invite you to partake of communion the Lord's table with us.